Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, the online editor. In the current issue of the magazine, Britain, we feature many established names such as Mario Vargas Llosa and Mark Haddon. But alongside those more familiar names, we're introducing an exciting new talent, Sam Byers, a writer who makes his debut in this issue with some other Catherine. Today we'll be talking about turning office life into fiction, writing women, and coming to accept one's Britishness. But first, a reading. Catherine didn't like to think of herself as sad. It had a defeatist ring about it. It lacked the pizzazz of, say, rage or mania. But she had to admit that these days she was waking up sad a lot more often than she was waking up happy. Weekends were worst. Workdays varied. The weather was largely inconsequential. Time in front of the mirror didn't help. She got ready in a rush, then adjusted incrementally later. She hadn't been eating well. Things were happening to her skin that she didn't like. Her gums bled onto the toothbrush. It struck her that she was becoming ugly at a grossly inopportune time. Breakfast was frequently skipped in favour of something unhealthy halfway through her working morning. She couldn't leave the house without a minimum of three cups of coffee inside her. Recently she had started smoking again. It helped cut the gloom. For the past two years, Catherine, having moved from London to Norwich by mistake, had been the facilities manager at a local telecommunications company. Her job centred on the finer points of workplace management. She was paid, she liked to say, to be an obsessive compulsive. She monitored chairs for ongoing ergonomic acceptability and suitable height in relation to desks and workstations, which she checked in turn to ensure compliance with both company guidelines and national standards for safe and healthy working environments. She performed weekly fire alarm checks and logged the results. Each morning she inspected the building for general standards of hygiene, presentation and safety. She fired at least one cleaner per month. She was widely resented and almost constantly berated. People phoned or messaged at least every hour. Their chairs, their desks, the air conditioning, the coffee maker, the water cooler, the fluorescent strip lighting. Nothing was ever to their liking. The numerous changes Catherine was obliged to implement in order to keep step with current health and safety legislation made her the public advocate of widely bemoaned alterations. Smokers had to walk further from the building, rooms had to be rearranged, breaks had to be renegotiated. Her job allowed no flexibility, meaning that she frequently came off as humourless and rigid. She took comfort, however, in the ease with which she could write off enmity as a response to her job role as opposed to her personality. Aside from the basic majority of colleagues who couldn't stand her, there also existed a splinter group comprising the men who wanted to fuck her. Some of them wanted to fuck her because they liked her, and some of them wanted to fuck her because they hated her. This suited Catherine reasonably well. Sometimes she fucked men because she felt good about herself, and sometimes she fucked them because she hated herself. The trick was to find the right man for the right moment, because fucking a man who hated you when you were actually having a rare moment of liking yourself was deeply counterproductive and fucking a man who was sort of in love with you at the peak of your self-hatred was nauseating. To date, Catherine had fucked three men in her office, one of whom, Keith, she was still fucking on a semi-regular basis. The other two, Brian and Mike, had faded ingloriously into the middle distance, lost amidst the M&S suits and male pattern baldness. Brian had been first. She'd she'd broken her no-office rule for Brian, and with hindsight, it hadn't been anywhere near worth it. She'd broken her married man rule too, and the rule about men with kids. 
She resented this because it afforded Brian a sense of history he in no way deserved. The reality was, at a time in her life when Catherine had made a conscious and not entirely irrational decision to jettison so many of the rules by which she had up to that point lived her life, Brian had been in the immediate vicinity and moreover had been a living exemplar of several of those rules. Hence the sex, which had happened quite suddenly one Tuesday afternoon after he'd given her a lift home from work, continued through to the following month and then ended when Catherine began wondering if some of her rules had in actual fact been quite sensible. Brian was 50-something, another broken rule now that she thought about it, fat and in the midst of an epic crisis. He drove a yellow Jaguar and had a son called Chicane. They never finished with each other. Catherine simply ceased to acknowledge his existence and the message was quietly, perhaps even gratefully, received. Mike was, on the outside at least, different. He was Catherine's age, 30, although there was room for adjustment depending on her mood, single and surprisingly good in bed, even more surprisingly, Catherine found him to be capable of several almost full-length conversations when the mood took him. Their affair, it wasn't really an affair, but Catherine liked to define it as such because it added value to the experience and because she'd not long previously fucked Brian and was hoping that she might be in a phase of having affairs, which would of course completely legit legitimise her sleeping with Mike, lasted almost two months. It ended when Mike found out that Catherine had slept with Brian. Much to Catherine's irritation, Mike turned out to be in possession of what he proudly called a moral compass. Catherine was not impressed. As far as she was concerned, morals were what dense people clung to in lieu of a personality. She told Mike as much after he tried to annex the high ground over the whole adultery issue. He ignored her. He couldn't respect her, he said. Catherine would always remember him walking away from the drinks cooler, shaking his head and muttering softly. All this had been a while ago, and there had been other non-office-based men floating around during the same time period. Nothing had gone well. She'd been waking up sad a lot more often. The thing with her skin had started. She'd gained weight, then lost it, then lost a little more. Sleep was becoming increasingly difficult. Once, during a stretch of annual leave, she'd taken purely to use up her quota. She'd swallowed a fistful of pills and curled up in bed, waiting to die only to wait five hours later in a puddle of vomit, many of the pills still whole in the mess. She had words with herself. She got dressed the next day and did her makeup and went into the city and collided with Keith, who suggested coffee, then food, then violent, bruising sex in his garage, her stomach pressed against the hot, ticking metal of his car bonnet. I remember once, said Keith, lying back against the car afterwards, Catherine beside him, both of them smoking and waiting for the pain to subside. What was I? Fuck it, it's gone. There were days when it seemed sordid and doomed, days which, oddly, Catherine found more romantic than the days of hope. There was something doomed about Keith generally and she liked it. He was 41 because, she thought, once you'd broken a rule it was no longer really a rule and so couldn't really be said to have been broken a second time. Thin on top and thick round the middle. At work he wore crumpled linen and skinny ties. In the evening he favoured faded black denims and battered converse. He had pale, slightly waxy skin and grey eyes with a white ring around the iris. Catherine had read somewhere that this had medical implications, but she couldn't remember what they were and so chose not to mention it. She liked the idea that Keith was defective, that he might be dying. She liked the fact that he was open about what he called his heroin years. She even liked the way he hurt her in bed, the sprained shoulder, the deep gouge on her left thigh. 
Keith was different in what Catherine saw as complementary ways. He was blunt where she was sharp. He would never love her, would probably never love anyone or anything, and Catherine admired about this, admired this about him. He seemed beyond the concerns that threatened daily, yes, daily by now, to swallow her whole. By, by definition, of course, this also placed him beyond her, but she liked that too. She didn't live in London. There were mornings when she had to stare hard into the mirror and repeat this to herself like some sort of mantra. On a good morning, she, should, she could just about say the word Norwich, but it was hard. After three years of dating, she and Daniel, her ex, had moved here together, ostensibly for his job, although there were unspoken implications regarding the pitter-patter of ghastly feet. But then they broke up, and London looked like it would be lonely, and now she was stuck. Always a practical woman, Catherine's mother felt the best way to voice her concerns about Catherine's well-being was to be direct. This seemed to involve repeatedly calling to ask Catherine if she was okay, which had the effect of making Catherine feel a long way from okay. Are you eating enough? Her mother would say bluntly. Are you eating healthy foods? Yes, Catherine would say, midway through a donut. This morning I had porridge for breakfast, and for lunch I had a baked potato with tuna fish. For dinner I'm going to have grilled chicken breast. Are you being facetious? Because it's unattractive, you know, and not entirely mature. I'm being honest. Is that mature? That depends, said her mother, on what you're being honest about. Catherine met with Keith only on selected evenings. They fucked and drank in heroic silence, which suited Catherine. She lived in fear of him saying something interesting, which might make her fall in love with him, or something horrific, which would shatter the illusion she'd so carefully constructed. He brought her a vibrator as a present, gift-wrapped, with a heart-shaped tag that read, Think of me. She donated it, tag and all, to her local charity shop. She never saw it for sale, and wondered often what had become of it. She liked to think one of the elderly volunteers had taken it home one lonely evening and subjected herself to an experience so revelatory as to border on the mystical. Thanks for reading that. It's fantastic. I want to ask you a little bit about rules to start with, because there's this paradox with Catherine that she's the arbiter of rules, that she's the person in the office who's supposed to keep certain standards in place, and yet she herself is in a total state of dilapidation and decay. Um, one of the things she says in that passage you just read about Keith is that she's attracted um, to the way that he was defective, like he might be dying. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about her tendency towards that kind of oblivion searching and then at the same time being quite order-bound in, in her work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think she's, she's kind of in that place in her life where she's heading towards rock bottom and probably quite comfortable with that in a funny sort of way and uh, probably quite keen to um, hasten the process along a little bit. Um, but in lots of other ways she does cling to things which make her feel in control um, and her job is one of those things. Um, and I think that's just because uh, an awful lot of what Catherine does is about power and about control and that's true of the way she encounters men and it's true of how she relates to her mother and um, it's that odd paradox of being an extremely controlling person who wants to control other people and wants to have power over people but being unable to kind of apply some of that discipline to yourself I suppose. Mm. 
sex seems to be something that's been emptied out of its its pleasure here. It's almost it's become mechanistic and and an extension in some ways of of office life or the sort of um, repeated task of um, you know crunching the numbers or whatever. It has become a task that's desiccated. Um, and yet, uh, Catherine seems to. I mean, she wields power through it as well. And absolutely. The only, only, only sort of glimmer of any enjoyment that you get in the story is the is the fantasy of the pensioner with the vibrator. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, the fa- the fantasy of uh, the the pensioner with the vibrator, I think, is um, obviously Catherine feels that sex is important, and it's very important to her, and it's important in her life, and it is. It probably, you know, it was obviously something she enjoyed uh, at some point. Um, And so I suppose she likes the idea of, she feels it's important that other people have that in their life. Um, But all pleasure has drained out of Catherine's life at this point. She's in that place where she's unable to kind of enjoy anything that she does, including sex. And I think it's also that sense of kind of... um, when you're single or you've kind of recently been through a breakup, uh, you read these kind of self-help things or, you know, articles in magazines that say, well, you know, you have to be dating, you have to kind of put yourself out there, you have to, as if that's going to give you this feeling of that your life is still okay. And so it's almost as if she's, she's trying to do the things she knows she should be doing, you know, meeting people, uh, but A, all the men she's meeting are, horrible and essentially are, are using her and B she's unable really to remember why she's doing that and I think there is a, a, a wider sense in which there's such a self-help culture now and there's, there's so much advice available for every aspect of your life that a lot of things do start to feel like they're being done by rote mm. um, and that's kind of the place Catherine's got to, there's no there's no real reason for her to do what she's doing anymore, but I think she wants to believe that she's still living a full life. There's a line in the story, um, in the extract, um, sympathy was a contact sport, and that seems to be a kind of a roadblock for her, you know, that sympathy involves a kind of collateral damage in some ways for Catherine. And I want to ask you as a writer and also as an observer of Catherine, you seem to be sort of deep, as you were just articulating there, you know, deeply sympathetic to her situation. I mean, is, it, is that something as a writer you, you're, you're conscious of wanting to do, kind of throw your voice into a character who, who is sort of, who might seem like she's kind of beyond sympathy in a way, because she doesn't appreciate it in others? Absolutely. Um, a lot of what Catherine's about, and by extension, in a way, what the whole book is about is about the limits of empathy Mm. and um, very deliberately you know I I feel Catherine's quite a likeable character Mm. like I'm surprised when people feel that she's not but she's a very difficult character and um, I think we live in a society uh, where we're very drawn to easy targets for our sympathy and empathy uh, almost a kind of empathy that asks nothing of us but empathy. Um, so, you know, there's passages where uh, Catherine looks at images of starving children and thinks about kind of the, 
plight of poorer people in the world and things like that. And it's that kind of... Um, I feel like we can all experience that kind of empathy. And as a writer, I could always make a reader experience that kind of empathy as well by just having a kind of poor, kind of victim kind of character. Yeah. And I think it's more interesting to say how far are you prepared to go with your empathy? Who are you prepared to feel for? And who are you prepared to extend understanding and forgiveness towards? Mm. Because actually, the vast majority of people in our society who do need support and do need help and do need understanding are actually very unlikely to be to receive that very easily. And they're likely to put up a lot of barriers and it's likely to be a very difficult thing. And I find that very interesting, both kind of in life, but very much so in fiction. And I'm, I'm quite suspicious of fiction that seems to seek a, a straightforward or simple emotional response. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to... I think it, I really like the idea of readers thinking, well, do I like this person or not? Can I feel for them or not? Yeah. Where does that end? And it seems like Catherine's a perfect kind of analogue for that exploration because one of, the, one of the things I really like about Catherine is she's, she's completely unsentimental. I mean, she has, there are, she has um, as you find out in the rest of the book, there's a, there's a deep wound that she's experienced. And that, so there is a, she is sort of, in some ways, it says in, in the extract that you read that she moved to Norwich by mistake. And you find out in the rest of the novel that there's, that that's very much the tip of a much larger iceberg, which mm. which is um, which is one full of kind of pain and hurt, um, which does humanise her to, to in in a sort of it, it places some of her um, uh, hard edges, let's say, in con- in some kind of context. But then, I thought that the hard edges themselves were sort of glori- gloriously defined. You know, that the way that she's very definite about, and she seems to be surrounded by. A sort of amorphous, um, kind of gloopy, um, warm, fuzzy office life, and I, and it was is there a great pleasure in 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 sort of navigating through her, and and cutting away some of those, you know, very um, familiar sort of social um, quirks that you might find in an office. Yeah, huge. I mean, partly, I I work in an office myself, and I was working in an office through kind of writing this. So, you know, it was fun to kind of bring some of the, you know, the frustrations of working in an office home and, and do something with them. But I also think it's a real, uh, it's a great thing as a, as a writer if you can, to have a character who's really honest and... One of the things that I think is admirable about Catherine, but which other people continually misinterpret as being a negative thing, is that she is incredibly honest. And she she doesn't really lie to people. And she doesn't really engage in what I see as a very British sense of kind of etiquette, essentially. She just doesn't do it. Um, and although that makes her difficult or challenging person, in inverted commas, in some ways, I really like it, so it was really fun for me to be able to work with a character who would, could always be counted on to, to say the unsayable. 
Uh, it is really fun. And, um, you know, once, once you've kind of let that go, it's, yeah. I, I feel like there's only one exception that I kind of I wanted to um, just to play devil's advocate a little bit it was that moment when Keith tells her that he's been um, sleeping with three people and she says four mm. and I, maybe that's the only instance where she'd refuse to be honest because she wouldn't want to have it's a power thing a bit like what you were saying yeah. earlier um, um, and true also I think that um, although much of what Catherine does is self-destructive much of what she does is self-protective as well mm. and you know what you describe as her hard edges um are there supposedly to stop her getting hurt and that's another mm. another example of that and i think she'd really like to be sleeping with more people than keith is sleeping with <laughs> it, i think it it's not so much that he's sleeping with other people it's that she's bothered by the fact that he's sleeping with more people than her you seem to have a very ready access to her and, and she almost seems to be... It's as if she's someone you know or that she's someone you've, you've encountered and I suppose that's in part what happens when you, you draw from life a little bit. But I wonder if that was... Did she emerge in, your, um, in the writing process quite fully formed or was she someone who occurred more so? It's interesting. Um, I knew I wanted to write about a kind of type of person... And I felt, um, I felt there was a dialogue uh, about the way quite a lot of women are kind of living their lives um, that wasn't really being had in fiction. Um, and I knew I wanted to do a kind of different kind of uh, female character. Um, and then a lot of her emerged out of the, the rhythm of the way that it was written. And... I started with that, you know, Catherine didn't like to think of herself as sad, was, was the first thing I wrote about Catherine. Mm. And once I'd, I'd got to a place where I knew I didn't want to do as many kind of scenes or actual kind of tangible moments, I knew I wanted to do longish passages that just described the rhythm and the routine of her life. And I think once I, that was happening rhythmically at a sentence level, she then emerged out of that, which is often, I find, you know, the way that it happens. But I would also say that I, I feel that everyone knows at least one Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about theme as well, because we mentioned that there's, um, the novel sort of extends some of these themes. And one of the themes I think that runs through it very much is, is self-deception, the limits of it, the sort of the widespread nature of it, um, the way that it's a sort of self-enclosing loop that no matter how sort of um, strong-willed you might be, as Catherine is, um, you end up sort of caught in your own net at some point or, you know, ensnared in it in some way. And I, I wondered if when you're approaching, I mean, perhaps this is um, in keeping with what you were just saying about creating a character through the rhythm and the sentences, but were you... Thematically, I mean, do you approach a novel with a theme in mind, or does that come later? Um, yeah, I do. I do. Um, but then I often end up realising that it's actually about a completely different theme. Mm. But I do... I always know that there are things I feel I would like to write about, or things that are interesting to me. Um, 
But I think a, the, the best kind of theme is one that just emerges from the way that the characters kind of interact with each other. And um, I think all of the characters in the book, um, in a way it's self-deception, but it's also that tension between um, uh, knowing that you're uh, not really behaving as you would want to behave and sort of also knowing how you should be behaving as well, having enough insight. There's a kind of really tricky um, uh, uh, overlapping between um, two different kinds of insight, I think, that goes on with the characters. So um, if you were simply just blissfully unaware of the effect you were having on other people and you were just living your life as you lived your life and you had no insight into that whatsoever, it almost seems as if that wouldn't be particularly painful. But what's difficult for Catherine and Daniel and most people in the book is that they're intelligent enough to be able to see all the ways in which they're not doing a good enough job mm. and then they torture mm. themselves with that. Uh, so, and I suppose that leads back to the idea of empathy as well. Uh, these are people who find it difficult to empathise with themselves, let alone other people. That's that's interesting. It's the burden of self-knowledge rather than... Because Daniel, to talk a little bit about him, he seems like, in some ways, the, um, the architect of a lot of the problems that come through the novel, in the sense that Catherine's situation, her, her stuck um, situation in, in Norwich, and her... Um, increasingly anonymous sex with with guys seems to have kind of been born out of of the way that he that Daniel treated her, mm. and yet and he's in this very um, um, uber cozy, slightly sort of saccharine, in some ways relationship mm. with someone who, uh, to me, they they sort of represented all of the um, comforts and um, uh, trappings of of a sort of middle class existence that they had all of the the sort of very um, familiar Um, and yet uh, and yet the sympathy sympathy seems to be extended to both of those characters in equal measure so you don't you don't feel that he's necessarily entirely to blame and I think Mm -hmm. is part of the is part of the um, is part of the project of of writing a novel constructing um, the architecture of um, these characters so that it doesn't fall down in a sort of judgmental way so that you, you've represented them in each of their sort of separate solitudes yeah for me very much so um, it, it's always very important uh, not to feel that I'm coming down on anyone's side or and I would always adjust if it felt like one character was becoming less likeable than another or um, and it was really important to me to to show that Daniel for all his kind of you know externally Daniel's a, a much more kind of grounded and uh, normal in inverted commas person than Catherine but uh, internally he's he's just as damaged and he's um, He's far more dishonest with himself and other people than than Catherine is, uh, and I really wanted to kind of play those things off against each other. Um, but yeah, there is a sense of architecture in that. It is, and I and I think particularly when you're um, writing about uh, 
essentially a kind of a, a failed relationship. Uh, I just don't think it would be interesting to construct a novel that was like, this relationship failed because one person in that relationship was awful. Because mm. that just is, you know, never the case at all. Mm. And I also wanted to explore that quite complicated area of, you know, Daniel and Catherine in many ways hate each other and in many ways are really bad for each other. Yet, actually sort of, that sort of works for them in a, in a rather sinister way. Um, so, yeah, that, that was all quite kind of carefully, carefully done. And I don't feel that you don't want your characters to run away with you, mm. run away from you. And, and also, I don't want to end up liking any one of them too much either because then I feel that they would end up with a, a story that was dishonest in some way that was just constructed so that I could be like mm. oh well I really like this person in the book so they'll have a nice time <laughs> yeah that's interesting so you're kind of aware of not wanting to have an agenda you want yeah. to just be yeah. um, I want to ask you a little bit about Britishness because you mentioned there Daniel is um, that you, sorry you mentioned earlier that Catherine um, is in some ways, deeply un-British in that she, mm. she sort of says things that really get people's backs up. Mm. Um, Daniel, by contrast, is quite British in that mm. he's, he's loath to express himself, express his feelings. He wouldn't, I mean, these are generalisations, but he, he, in some ways, he's sort of the archetypal um, British person in yeah. that sense. And I, I wonder if you were approaching this, particularly being in the, the Britain issue, although that... Um, mm. <laughs> that's um, uh, well we'll talk about that in a second but I, I wonder are you conscious of wanting to um, wanting to observe a particular kind of British uh, reluctance to feeling or emotion um, yes and I also think it's quite it's quite fertile ground for a novelist I think to um if you're going to come from the perspective, as I do, that, that what the novel does best and what the novel does that other media can't do is people's interior states. Um, it's, and so you know you're going to do a lot of people's thoughts and a lot of their feelings and a lot of how they're thinking about things. It's exciting to explore the point where uh, their own conflict kind of... Uh, is played out in their heads and that very British sense of not wanting to express yourself and not wanting to upset other people played out as an interior drama I think is endlessly fascinating I always find that intriguing um, because it ends up <laughs> I mean Daniel really ends up making himself incredibly unhappy a lot of the time because he, he never says <laughs> what he's thinking or feeling but then stews about it for you know really long periods of time and obsessively kind of goes over it again and again and it's just so many of his problems would be solved if he, if he just said what was going on in his head sometimes um, but he always wants to present he's very particular about the face he wants to present to the world and I think that's a very British thing as well and I also think we're just beginning to get used to the idea in Britain that um, uh, people can be hurt. You know, I think there's that really old-fashioned British stiff upper lip kind of sense. That is dying away. And we're now 
we're beginning to live in a society where it, you're encouraged to express your feelings sort of all the time uh, and talk about how you're feeling and say, well, I'm feeling this and, you know, yesterday I kind of felt that. And um, it's really interesting to me the extent to which that may or may not be a positive development in, in English culture. One, because I think it leaves a certain type of Daniel-like person slightly stranded because not only can he now not express himself, he's under enormous pressure from everyone around him to continually express himself all the time. And also for someone like Catherine, actually that continual feedback loop of looking at your feelings, saying I'm feeling this, thinking about what you just said, about what you're feeling, actually can become really counterproductive as well. And it's been really interesting to watch how Britain adjusts to what I, I, if I were being stereotypical, would say is a slightly more American kind of approach to talking about ourselves, which traditionally English people hate talking about themselves. <laughs> You're always told not to talk about yourself. Don't ever talk about yourself. People don't want to hear about it. Uh, so I think, I think that's really interesting. I, like That's an area I continue to kind of pick away at. Uh, and it does beg the question of, whether that's really, whether it really is a more positive world to live in if we all constantly tell each other how we're feeling. Doesn't a certain amount of that come from, um, if you think about the entry point for that kind of culture to come through, Catherine in some ways is situated, and I'm, I wonder if this is deliberate or not, she's in some ways situated at the sort of bureaucratic mouth of, uh, she's, she's situated at the sort of, the the font through which this kind of you know talking about yourself she wants she, her job is essentially to make sure that everybody's happy with their chairs everybody's yes. happy with everything in the office that they, they feel okay in the office yes absolutely and was that did that happen sort of that's a sort of genius move but I wonder <laughs> a largely accidental one uh, but it was important I mean I think the kind of the so called if you spend any time working in, in any organisation in Britain now, you know that the, the health and safety culture, I do think, is absolutely fascinating. And that has kind of grown up around the idea that we, we do all need to be comfortable and we all have a right to be protected mm. all the time. You know, we must not get hurt. We're seemingly terrified now of getting hurt ourselves or hurting other, other people, you know, don't trip over that. And I think it's very interesting how that has radiated out, radiated out into a kind of... Um, it's now almost an emotional take on that as well, in that, you know, we're very concerned about being hurt emotionally and, you know, whether or not, other, you know, people are hurt. And I think it's all part of an interesting culture of entitlement, in a way. And, you know, I think people seem to feel now that they have the right to move through life unharmed, be it physically or emotionally. Mm. Um, and I think Catherine doesn't quite buy into that, but Daniel does, I think. Um, you know, the, it, essentially the right to be happy. So I think all of the stuff with the desks and the chairs mm -hmm. does kind of tie in with the stuff about feelings as well and just that sense of, because, of course, we can't be protected, you know, however good your chair is, or, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, no matter how ergonomic. But the, um, it's interesting that in that sense of 
kind of burgeoning sense of entitlement. The other one of the other British things that sort of runs the risk of being dissolved somewhat or levelled in a way is the class um, system, and um, it's interesting that some of those anxieties about class and and hierarchy and power seem to have been sublimated into this culture of um, that a more touchy feely kind of culture. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a very middle class culture. It's it's a white middle class culture essentially, um, and it was really important to me, and it's still really important to me to um, to really deliberately and really overtly write about middle class people and the way they see themselves, because I think there's quite a lot of writing about how the classes in Britain interact with each other and the you know. The, the class gap and class conflict and all of this sort of thing but um, what's really interesting about the the middle classes is once once you're in that position of essentially being that privileged you have the luxury of finding 600 other things to worry about which you just wouldn't have the time to worry about if you were worrying about you know how you were going to put food on the table and um and it's always really interesting. You read quite a lot of book reviews that say things like, uh, oh no, not another book about uh, middle-class white people. And it's always middle-class white people saying that. <laughs> you just think, how, how much more self-hating do you want to be? <laughs> and it's that kind of incredible hypocrisy that I just, I think there'll always be more to explore in that. And it fascinates me that middle class people white middle class people just don't want to explore themselves in that way for all of that talking about feelings and you know this is who I am and etc etc there are huge hypocrisies that never get kind of suitably skewered and humour is probably the best way to Mm. get at that I think do you think of yourself as a humorist, I mean, or a comic writer? I mean, do you, is that something? Because I no. no. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a really. Uh, I used to. It, it's a very reluctant kind of thing, and it kind of happened accidentally. I always used to feel that I wanted to write something incredibly serious. Everything I wrote was very kind of grave. People were always, you know, like there's a lot of death and. Uh, because I wanted to be profound. I thought it was really important as a writer to be really profound about everything. Um, and I even used to, if I looked at the back of a book and it said, oh, like, hysterically funny or whatever, I'd be like, oh, that's not for me, you know. <laughs> I read profound books. Um, and then I was starting work on, on Catherine and uh, uh, I'd started writing some of the Daniel passages. And... In, in my head, I was very kind of influenced by contemporary American fiction. And, and I, I took what I had to my supervisor at UEA, Giles Foden. And uh, he read it and he said, oh, what you're writing here is, is just a classic English comic novel. And I was like, oh no, how's, <laughs> how's that happened? That sounds really naff, that sounds awful. And he said, you need to read uh, Kingsley Amis and Evelyn War." <clears throat> And I said, there's no way I'm going to... I don't want to read them. I think I'm going to hate them. Uh, I've always thought I hate that kind of writing. And actually, of course, I went away and read Evelyn Moore and thought, 
it's absolutely fantastic and it it changed my perception about a lot of things it changed my perception about how humor can work in the novel and it also I began to accept that I'm a British writer mm. and that people shouldn't drink in bars, they should go to the pub and, <laughs> you know, uh, they shouldn't go to the store, they should go to the shop. And mm. I used to kind of resist that kind of Englishness creeping into the, I guess because I had kind of aspirations of like kind of big chunky American novels and mm. I, I, I love the kind of American fictive voice um, but actually once I kind of just let all of those <laughs> woes go embraced what is a much more natural voice for me um, I began to really enjoy it and I realised that it's it's okay to have the occasional <laughs> joke in there and uh, it's okay to be kind of overtly British and to write about Britain. And so it was really odd to end up in the, in the Britain issue in a way, because a couple of years ago, I would have, I would have found that really, really bizarre. And you know, I would have hated the idea of being a British writer in inverted commas, but now I, I, I've come to accept it, I think. <laughs> I think that's a good point to, to close, but I, I... I, uh, it's so interesting that you feel like you, you now own, you're owning it, you know, and that I, I can understand um, the trepidation, particularly when there's, as you say, such a sort of self-loathing uh, vein. <laughs> um, but I wonder, well, I want to ask you what, what's on the horizon and also um, have you, in the experience of being in the magazine, has that in, in any way reshaped and or deepened or um, extended any of those other ideas of what what's being written in Britain, you know, and how you see it as a country. Certainly, um, uh, I suppose. Firstly, just in terms of um, obviously, as a writer, you, you always think you you're a total island. You know, like you're just you're alone in the world, and uh, so. The notion that there, you know, that there is a kind of community of, of, of British writers, and that um, there are actually, it's it's a much more kind of collective feeling, which I think the issue gets across really well, and that also those voices are really diverse and they're really different, um, and also I was particularly really pleased about Robert McFarlane's piece being in there because it's in a way it's also nature writing that I think helps me to overcome my reluctance about in, uh, England and and realise that it's a kind of really beautiful place. And, I, you know, he's a writer who really gets that across, I think, and it's it's easily forgotten. I think, you know, one, one of the things we're quite good at doing in, in Britain is complaining and moaning about things and saying that everything's rubbish. And it was really nice to read a piece reminding us that you know there's a lot of beauty in England as well mm. um, whether or not I suppose being what being in Granta has really deepened is uh, my sense of being a writer uh, and it's the first time I've had anything really in out in public so it's the first time I suppose I've been able to feel like a writer and that's been 
that's been nice and, and strange. <laughs> well, we're, we're delighted to have introduced you and it's been, um, wonderful and yeah, and, and funny and, and strange. <laughs> um, but, uh, and yeah, we'll hopefully have you back on here sometime soon. I'd love that. Thank okay. you. Thanks. Thank you for listening and join us next time on the Grunter Podcast. Thank you.